ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد continuing with بلوغ المرام ونوان حديث انسان لا تصلوا الى القبور ولا تجلسوا عليها حديث أبي مرثد الغنوي رضي الله عنه قال سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول لا تصلوا إلى القبور ولا تجلسوا عليها رواه مسلم Do we do this? So this hadith now Abu Marthad al-Ghanawi He says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said Do not pray towards the graves and do not sit upon them Do not pray towards the graves and do not sit upon them. The hadith which is in uh, Muslim. As for the first part of the hadith, do not pray towards the graves, that was mentioned in the previous narration too. As one of the places that you don't pray, i.e. the graveyards. That was mentioned in the previous narration about not praying in the graveyards, as one of the places where it is impermissible to pray, with the exception of the janazah. If there was a need, it could be, it could be prayed there, as we mentioned. The second part of this narration it mentions, وَلَا تَجْلِسُوا عَلَيْهَا And do not sit upon the graves. This part of the hadith, then it indicates uh, something which is from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, that a person does not degrade the graveyards. A person doesn't degrade the graveyards, uh, the places where people are buried. And in fact, a person doesn't go into either extreme. And this narration indicates that, that a person doesn't go into either extreme when it comes to the graveyards or where people are buried. He doesn't go into the extreme whereby he starts to believe that these people can help him or aid him, or he starts falling into shirk in that regard, or maybe to the extent that he starts to pray towards the graves. That is extremism on that side. But at the same time, a person doesn't go into extremism on the other side whereby he degrades the graves and walks upon them and uses them as a place to dump his rubbish, etc. So here, one of the things mentioned is, لا تجلسوا عليها Do not sit upon the graves. Ashraq Fawzan, Hafidahullah says, هذا نهي عن إهانة القبور This is a prohibition from the degradation of the graves. فَكَمَا نَهَا عَنِ الْإِفْرَاطِ وَهُوَ الْمُغَالَاتِ فِي تَعْظِيمِ الْقَبُورِ وَتَقْدِيسِهَا فَإِنَّهُ نَهَا عَنِ التَّفْرِيضِ وَهُوَ إِهَانَةُ تِلْكَ الْقَبُورِ So just like the Prophet ﷺ prohibited exaggeration in terms of the graves, praying towards them, etc. At the same time, he warned against falling short with the actual rights of the people in their graves, the graveyards. And that is to not degrade them by sitting upon them, etc. So a person must maintain those areas, maintain the sanctity of those areas, or the 
the uh, the honor of those areas due to Muslims being buried there. So a person doesn't sit upon the graves or walk between them or throw uh, dirt and rubbish in those areas or build pathways to go through graveyards as shortcuts, etc. Those types of things shouldn't be done as an honor for the people buried, particularly if they are Muslims, to maintain the honor of those who are buried in that place. So the Shaykh says, فَلَا يَجُوزْ أَن تُمْتَهَنْ الْمَقَابِرِ So it is not permissible to degrade the graveyards. بِأَن تُتَّخَذَ لِلْجُلُوسِ To the extent that they are taken as places of sitting. أَوْ لِإِيقَافِ السَّيَارَاتِ Or parking cars. أَوْ لِلْتَطَرُّقْ مِنْ فَوْقِهَا Or to build pathways above them. أَوْ لِقَضَاءِ الْحَاجَ فِيهَا Or to use them as a place to relieve yourself. أَوْ أَنَّهَا تُتَّخَذُ مَزَابِلْ Or that they are taken as places where rubbish is thrown. فَهَذَا كُلُّهُ حَرَامُ All of this is impermissible. لِأَنَّ فِيهِ أَذِيَّةِ لِلْمَوْتَى وَانْتِهَاكًا لِحُرْمَةِ الْأَمْوَاتِ وَحُرْمَةِ الْمُسْلِمْ مَيْتًا كَحُرْمَتِهِ حَيًّا All of that is impermissible because it is harmful to those who are dead, buried in their graves. It is a dishonor to them. It's a dishonor to them to degrade the graveyards in this way by carrying out these types of activities. And the honor of a Muslim, it remains after his death, just as it was upon him during his life. The honor of the Muslim, the sanctity or meaning uh, uh, the, the honor that you can't transgress against him, that is after his death, just as it was before his death. So even after the death, then you don't degrade the grave of that Muslim or that person buried. هذا هو الدين الإسلام دين الوسط والاعتدال في كل الأمور. This is the way that the religion of Islam is. It is a religion of uh, being centered in the middle. It doesn't have exaggeration to one side or extremism to the other side, but it is always in the center. So we don't go to extremes with the graves, praying towards them, etc., and neither do we go to the exaggeration of falling short on the other side, and therefore degrading them. And that's why the two parts are mentioned, لا تصلوا إلى القبور ولا تجلسوا عليها Don't pray towards the graves, don't exaggerate that way, ولا تجلسوا عليها And don't sit on them and degrade them, so don't fall short on the other side. But be in the middle, and that is the way of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah in all of their affairs. After that, the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم The Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said إذا جاء أحدكم المسجد فلينظر فإذا رأى فينا عليه أذى أو قذرا فليمسحهما وليصلي فيهما أخرجه أبو داود وصححه ابن خزيمة وعن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه قال أن أوصل حديث أبو هريرة قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا وطئ أحدكم الأذى بخفي فطهورهما التراب أخرجه أبو داود الصححة وابن حبان The first narration, the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri رضي الله عنه He says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said If one of you comes to the masjid When you come to the masjid Then look Look if you see some dirt, some impurity rather, if you see some impurity on the shoes, if you see some impurity on your shoes, then wipe them. And then you can pray in them. 
The hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu, the Prophet said, if you come to the masjid, when you come to the masjid, then look, I look at your shoes. If you see some impurity in them, then wipe them, and then you can pray in them. The second hadith of Abu Huraira, the Prophet said, uh, if one of you steps upon some impurity with his footwear, if one of you steps upon some impurity with his footwear, then the purification of that is via soil. If you step on something impure, then you purify it with soil. But that will come now in the explanation of these two ahadith. So the hadith of Abu Sa'id and Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhuma, fihima al-amr bishtinab al-najasa fi salah. The point of these two narrations is that a person has to make sure there is no impurity upon him when he prays. That's the point of these two narrations talking about the shoes. Check them before you enter the masjid. Then if they're clean, you can pray in them, etc. The point of all of that is to make sure that there is no impurity when a person prays. Like we said, you have to check that there's no impurity on three things. Those three things were what? The clothing. You have to make sure the clothing is free of impurity. The body, your actual body has to be free of impurity and the place where you're going to pray. The three aspects. So the shoes, they come into the aspect of the clothing. They are a part of the clothing. So this, these two ahadith are referring to that aspect of making sure that the clothing that a person has upon him when he prays, it is pure. لِأَنَّ مِنْ شُرُوطِ صِحَّةِ الصَّلَاءِ اِجْتِنَابِ النَّجَاسَ فِي الثَّوْبَ الْبَدْنِ وَالْبُقْعَةِ because as we mentioned, the Shaykh says, um, from the conditions of the prayer is that impurity is not present on the clothing or the body or the place where you're going to pray. Uh, and when we talk about the clothes must be pure, then that includes everything that a person wears. Whether it is trousers, the under uh, clothing that he wears below the thobe, or the clothing on top, or the vest, or the shoes, or the socks, whatever it might be. Any type of clothing, then all of that must be free from impurity as a condition of the prayer. And that's mentioned in the Quran, in Surah Al-Muddathir, وَثَيَابَكَ فَطَهِّرْ And your clothing purified. Some of the scholars, they say the meaning of that is regarding shirk. That... Uh, uh, Cleanse your actions from shirk. But some of the scholars have said, it can mean literally in terms of your clothing. Uh, maintain pure clothes that do not have any impurity upon them. So this is the topic, the subject of these ahadith now. Making sure that there is no impurity on your clothes when you pray. So the hadith of Abu Sa'id, the Prophet ﷺ said, if you come to the mosque, when you come to the masjid, then look to your shoes. If you find some impurity, then wipe them. I clean them, wipe them. Then you can pray in them. In the hadith of Abu Huraira, it tells us how to wipe them. Because the hadith of Abu Huraira says, فَطَهُورُهُمَا التراب. The purification of them is via soil. So when you put the two hadith together, they come to one meaning, which is that when you go to the masjid, check your shoes. If there is some impurity on them, then you must purify them by wiping them in the soil. 
That's how the two come together. So both of these ahadith, they indicate the condition of the prayer. Remember, we are in the chapter of the conditions of the prayer. Both of these ahadith, they indicate the condition of the purity of clothing, i.e. that there cannot be any impurity upon the clothing, including the shoes. So if a person comes to the masjid, وَأَنَّهُ عَلَى الْمُسْلِمِ إِذَا أَتَى الْمَسْجِدِ The shaykh says, it is upon a Muslim if he goes to the masjid, when he goes to the masjid, إِنْ كَانَتْ نَجِسَ فَإِنَّهَا تُؤَثِّرُ عَلَى صِحَّةِ الصَّلَاةِ If his shoes were impure, there was some impurity on them, then that will affect the correctness of his prayer. فَالْإِنسَانِ يَنْظُرُ فِينَا عَلَيْهِ قَبْلَ الدُّخُولِ So a person looks towards his shoes before entering. بِأَنْ يَخْلَعْهُمَا وَيَنْظُرْ فِيهِمَا Meaning that he takes them off and looks towards them to see if there is anything in terms of impurity on them. فَإِنْ وَجَدَ فِيهِمَا أَذَا أَوْ قَذَرًا فَعَلَيْهِ أَنْ If he finds some impurity on them, then it's upon him to remove them. It's upon that individual to then remove the shoes if he finds any impurity on them. In the narration it says, أَذَن أَوْ قَذَرًا Both of the words indicate a type of impurity, but this is from the preciseness of the narrator. He was unsure whether the Prophet ﷺ mentioned the word other or mentioned the word qadr, and so therefore he mentioned them both uh, as a precaution to make sure that uh, he doesn't select one of them and it was the other one. So then the hadith says, if you do find some impurity, wipe them. Wipe them clean. And in the hadith of Abu Huraira, it says, wipe them with soil. So, what are the issues and the rulings to be taken from this? Firstly, دَلَّ حَدِيثَ بِسَعِيدَ عَلَى وُجُوبِ احْتَرَامِ الْمَسَاجِدِ وَأَنْ لَا يَدْخُلُ الْمَسْجِدَ بِمَا وَلَا يَدْخُلُ الْمَسْجِدَ بِمَا يُلَوِّثَ وَأَنْ تُصَانَ الْمَسَاجِدُ عَنِ التَّلْوِيثِ The first benefit to be taken from these narrations which say that when a Muslim comes to the masjid, he needs to check his shoes, take them off, check them. If there is an impurity, then wipe them clean with soil. And then you can pray in them. So all of that indicating the condition of purity being required upon your clothing. These narrations, they indicate firstly, the obligation of honoring the masajid. The obligation of honoring the masajid. Because that is a means of honoring the masajid too. That a person makes sure, if he's going to enter the masjid with his shoes, he makes sure that there's no impurity upon them. As an honor for the masjid too. Otherwise, you bring in all of that pollution into the masjid, that dirt, that impurity. And that is not honor for the masjid if you were to do that. So the masjid, the masajid, they are maintained and they are protected from any type of pollution or dirt or impurity of this nature coming into them. And that's indicated by the fact that the Prophet ﷺ said, check your shoes before coming into the masajid. Secondly, في حديث بسعيد دليل على اشتراط طهارة الملبوس في الصلاة The second point to mention, again it's a recap, is that these ahadith indicate the obligation of purity of clothing for the prayer. That the clothes must be free from any type of impurity, because if they did have the impurity on them, لم تصح الصلاة, the prayer would not be correct, because of the fact, due to the fact that this condition is missing now. The impurity is there, if it was there. 
and therefore that condition would be missing. The third issue which is mentioned then is the legislation, the permissibility, the legislation of being able to pray in shoes. The permissibility, it's allowed and it's correct and it's legislated to pray in shoes. That's clear in these two ahadith. Clear and blatant, the permissibility of praying in shoes. And that is actually something mustahab. It's actually something mustahab to pray the prayer in shoes. And that's known from the narration of the Prophet ﷺ where he said, خَالِفُ الْيَهُودِ فَإِنَّ الْيَهُودَ لَا يُصَلُّونَ فِي نِعَالِهِمْ Hadith which is authentic in Abu Dawood where the Prophet ﷺ said, Oppose the Jews. For indeed the Jews uh, do not pray in their shoes. Oppose the Jews, for indeed they do not pray in their shoes. So opposing them and praying in your shoes is something mustahab. That's good, it's recommended. Walakin, however, make note of this. Walakin bishart an takuna With the condition that the shoes are pure. With the condition that the shoes are pure. And something which needs to be mentioned too now, أَن لَا يَتَأَثَّرَ الْمَسْجِدِ بِالصَّلَاةِ فِي النِّعَالِ That the masjid is not affected in any detrimental manner by wearing those shoes. There isn't any <coughs> ill consequence which arises from people wearing the shoes in that particular given masjid. The Shaykh mentions that here. Two things he says. However, he says, وَلَكِنْ بِشَرْطًا تَكُونَ النِّعَالِ طَاهِرًا With the condition that the shoes must be pure. And that's clear from the hadith. And also he says, أَنْ لَا يَتَأَثَّرَ الْمَسْجِدَ بِالصَّلَاةِ فِي النِّعَالِ That the mosque isn't affected by wearing shoes. There isn't some consequence which arises from wearing shoes in that masjid. Then the shaykh goes on to clarify further. فَالْمَسَاجِدُ فِي الْوَقْتِ الْحَاضِرِ لَمَّا صَارَتْ تُفْرَشُ وَتُنَظَّفُ He says the masajid these days, in the present time that we live in now, they are such that they all have carpets in them. They all have these carpets within the masajid now, and they are all cleaned, hoovered and cleaned and swept up with carpets inside them. This is how the masajid are these days. فَمِنَ الطَّبِيعِ أَنَّ النَّاسِ لَوْ دَخَلُوا فِي نِعَالِهِمْ وَصَلُّوا فِيهَا فَإِنَّهَا تَتَأَثَّرُ بِذَلِكَ The shaykh says, it's absolutely a natural thing. It doesn't even require thinking, it's logical. It's a natural thing. If you've got carpets in masajid now, and those carpets are cleaned and washed and hoovered regularly and brushed up, etc. It's absolutely natural and logical. If you were to start walking in with your shoes into those masajid, that I've got carpets and that are cleaned and hoovered, then those masajid would clearly become affected by people walking in with their shoes on. They would clearly be affected. The carpets would clearly be damaged, or uh, the wear and tear on the carpets, it would cause an effect on them. There would clearly be an effect upon the carpets now, that the masajid have within them, if people came in with their shoes on. Because remember, we are saying here, the shoes have to be pure. Pure. An individual that's got some mud on his shoes or some other soil or other bits and bobs stuck in between the grooves at the bottom 
but it's pure, that's pure. Technically you can walk into the masjid with that. But that obviously will affect the carpet, the dirt on the carpet, the walking with shoes on the carpet, etc. And everybody knows that. And that's why the vast majority of people, if not everyone, whoever has carpets in your houses, especially if you get it new, you will know that you don't take your shoes inside. Everybody leaves their shoes in the alleyway at the beginning, and then you walk in without your shoes. Why? Because of the very logical thing, if you walk in with your shoes, the wetness of the rain from outside, the, the soil within them, other bits and dirts within them, it will affect the carpet and it will damage it in a quick time. So the shaykh says there's no doubt nowadays with the way that the masajid are, with the carpets etc, they are going to be affected. If people started to walk in with their shoes, they would be affected. In that case the shaykh says, فَإِذَا تَعَارَضَتْ هَذِهِ الْمَفْسَدَةِ مَعَ تَطْبِيقِ تِلْكَ السُنَّةِ So then the shaykh says, if you have this uh, conflict, there's a conflict now. On the one hand, we want to make sure that we don't damage the carpet, so we're not paying £2,000, £3,000 every month to get a new carpet in the masjid. On the one hand, we want to make sure that's not happening. But on the other hand, we want to implement the sunnah of praying in the shoes. So we have this conflict on this issue now. On the one hand, you don't want to create this uh, mafsada, this uh, corruption, this uh, wrongful act which would be to damage the carpets and then have to pay a thousand pounds every month to get a new carpet in. Or every few months or whatever it is. Or pay extra money to have to keep cleaning it all the time. And it's not possible to do so. That's a mafsada. But at the same time, on the other hand, we need to pray in our shoes, or not rather, we need to pray, but it's a sunnah to pray in the shoes. So how do we do, or what do we do with regards to this conflict in interests? The shaykh says, the principle in the religion is, فَالْأَوْلَى دَرْءُ الْمَفْسَدَةِ The principle in the religion is, when you have a conflict of this nature, where you have a choice, either you stop the bad thing from happening, or you do the good thing. You have a bad consequence that is going to occur, or you have something good. What's the bad consequence here? The carpets being damaged, all the money having been wasted. That's the bad consequence, or the ill consequence which will arise if everybody came with their shoes. The good thing though is that you're going to be fulfilling the sunnah, praying with your shoes on. So you have a conflict of interest. You can only do one of the two. Either allow everybody to come with their shoes into the masjid and therefore damage the carpets and be paying thousands of pounds on a regular basis or hundreds of pounds or whatever it costs. Or don't allow them to do that and in that case you protect yourself from that ill effect. You protect yourself from the damaged carpets but at the cost of not being able to pray with your shoes on. In this instance the principle in the religion is which one is given precedence? First one? Correct. Dar'ul Mafsada. To prevent the harm is given precedence as a principle than bringing the good. The good is to be able to pray with your shoes on in the masjid. The harm is the damage and the money and the expenses, etc., etc. The principle in the religion is preventing the harm is given precedence over bringing the, the benefits. And the Shaykh uses that principle here. For this issue, that if you allowed everyone to come with their shoes, etc., then no doubt the carpet wouldn't last. 
and you will be continuously repairing it and fixing it and bringing new ones in, etc., etc. So you prevent that harm. Okay, it's at the expense of allowing people to pray with their shoes in the masjid. But how do we answer that? In case somebody says, well, in that case, that's a bid'ah. In that case, that's a bid'ah. You're preventing people from doing something which the Prophet says is mustahab. So then how do you answer to that point? The Shaykh says the reality is, uh, with regards to that, here or at a later point he mentions, praying in your shoes, it's an act of sunnah. It's an act of sunnah. It's not something as an obligation. It's not like it's a condition of the prayer and it's an obligation. Then it wouldn't be possible to say, well the carpet's going to be damaged, so we'll have to leave that condition of the prayer. It wouldn't be possible then. But that's not the case. We haven't got a scenario here where this is an obligation. On top of that, even if people don't pray with their shoes on in the masjid, that has not negated or cancelled the sunnah. Because if you were to practice the whole of the sunnah properly, which would mean that you pray your fard prayers in the masjid, and you pray the supererogatory prayers at home. So what's to prevent you from praying with your shoes on at home? Pray in some area, in the alleyway even if it is that, or in some other area of your home, pray with your shoes on. So then in that way, everything is intact. There's no damage to the carpets in the masajid, which are going to cost hundreds of pounds to repair all the time. But at the same time, you're still implementing the sunnah, and praying with your shoes on with some of your prayers. So there isn't really any issue to arise. You are still fulfilling the sunnah of praying with your shoes on, and at the same time, you are protecting the masajid, and not wasting money. So in that instance, the shaykh says, there isn't really an issue with this in that way. Preventing that uh, uh, harm is given precedence over this uh, bringing of this good. And there's more examples of that. The Kaaba. The Kaaba is currently built on the foundations of Ibrahim, salam or not. It's not. There's a section missing. That semicircle that you see on one side, that's where the Kaaba should be up to. That's how it should be up to. It should be a rectangular shape. That semicircle that you see on one side of it. That's where the Kaaba should be up to. So is there not a hadith when the Prophet ﷺ said, that was it not for the fact that the people are new to Islam, then I would have taken the Kaaba down and built it again upon the original foundations. That's a good. But what was the harm? If the Prophet ﷺ did that, the people would have accused him and looked at him with shock and surprise. He's knocking down the house of Allah. There would have been a harm. People would have maybe fled from Islam. They say, what the Muslims doing? Destroying the house of Allah, etc., etc. The chaos that would have arisen, that was a harm. The benefit was to build the Kaaba upon its original foundation. But it was left in order to prevent the harm from occurring. That goodness was left to prevent the harm from occurring. And that's an example that the scholars give for this principle. So here that's what the shaykh mentions, that with regards to praying uh, with your shoes on in the masajid, it will cause this problem due to the fact that masajid now have carpets, etc. They are clean, they are well kept, they are uh, hoovered, etc. All of these things. Then in that instance, to prevent that harm and that damage which occurs, then it is okay to uh, not pray with your shoes on in the masajid, not to bring them into the masajid, since it is a sunnah act anywhere, not an obligation, and on top of that, like we said, it doesn't mean just because you can't pray with your shoes on in the masajid, that this sunnah is now uh, cancelled. 
You can pray with your shoes on when you're at home. Maybe you're traveling on a journey and most times pray with your shoes on. There are many instances where you will find the opportunity to pray with your shoes on. It's not really an argument or a complaint. The masjid doesn't allow us, therefore we can't. And this is what all of the scholars have said. Shaykh Muhammad bin Salih al-Thaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala, was asked about praying with your shoes on in the haram. Technically it's permissible. There's nothing haram about it. In terms of, are you allowed from the legislation in the sharia to walk into the Prophet's masjid with the shoes on? Yes, it's allowed. But for this reason and for these principles, you don't do it. As Shaykh Muhammad Salih said, if you were to do that, the chaos it would cause with the people, let alone all of the damage and everything else, leave that aside. Just the chaos it would cause with people. How everybody would look at you and they would think maybe you are even an apostate due to the ignorance of some of the people. Because they don't understand. Walk with your shoes into the masjid. They think that's some type of, type of dishonor and de- degradation for the masjid. And that you have no respect for Islam, no respect for the masjid. That's what they think. From their ignorance of not knowing that Islamically, actually, it's permissible to do that. So the shaykh says, due to the corruption that would arise, the confusion of the people, and how they would run away from this affair, how they'd run away from you, wouldn't take anything from you. And the abuse and the criticism that would come your way, from the ignorance of the people, their minds wouldn't be able to handle that. And then on top of that, all of the damage that occurs, and that's why Shaykh Ibn Al-Uthaymeen similarly said, you shouldn't take your shoes into the masajid. If there was a masjid that was built in a way, for example, it had uh, the, uh, the wooden floors that some people have now. It had the wooden laminate floor or something of that nature. That wasn't an issue. All you have to do is dust up the, brush up the dust afterwards. Khalas, no problem. Walk in with your shoes and pray if the, the, that masjid is of that nature and there's no problem like that. But the shaykh says, with the way that the masajid are now, it's difficult to be able to do that due to this harm that arises. But like we said, that doesn't prevent you from implementing the sunnah in every other occasion. المسألة الرابعة يدل حديث بهريرة على أن تظهير الخفين والنعلين يكون بمسحهما في التراب ولا يلزم غسلهما بالماء وهذا هو قول جماعة من أهل العلم عملا بظاهر الحديث uh, The hadith indicates that if a person goes to the masjid and then he checks his shoes and he does find some impurity in them that he has to then wipe them clean Wipe them in some soil. Wipe them in some soil, and that is how to purify them. This is the opinion of a group of the scholars. They say if you have some impurity in your shoes, you stepped on something that was impure, some impurity of some nature. And remember, impurity doesn't mean mud or dirt. Dirt and mud and these things are not impurities. If you went and walked into a a mud pit by accident, and your shoe was full of mud, you could still go to the next field and pray with your shoes on. Mud isn't impure. Impurity is separate to something just being dirty. So impurity, if you find some impurity on your shoe, then it's mentioned that you can wipe it clean in soil. That's the opinion of some of the scholars based upon this narration of Abu Huraira. And they say you don't have to use water. It's not a necessity to have to use water. You can just rub those shoes in the soil to remove the impurity and that is sufficient. And that is the opinion of some of the scholars, including Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahumallah, and other than them. The reasoning behind that, or the wisdom that may be derived from that is, i.e. the fact that you don't have to use water, whereas typically if your clothes had some impurity on them, you couldn't just rub soil on it and say that's it, you'd have to wash it with water. But with the shoes, 
It's not that. You don't have to wash it with water. One of the reasons being, the scholars they say, Sheikh Fawzan mentions, as a means of placing ease upon the people. As a means of placing ease and facilitation upon the believers. Because no doubt the shoes, they are one part of your clothing that is most likely to pick up impurities. If you're walking around somewhere here, there, it's the shoes that are going to step on something. Not your shirt or your clothing or whatever. It's going to be the shoes. So due to the fact that they are the item that are most likely to become impure most regularly, if anything from any part of your clothing it's going to be your shoes, then from facilitation and ease, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed us to simply wipe them clean, rub them clean in soil, rather than having to go and wash them every single time. Which would be difficult and time consuming and a burden. On top of the fact, Sheikh Fawzan mentions, it could actually cause damage to the shoes. Shoes are not like clothes. They're not made out of cloth in that way. Clothes, wash them, wash them, there's no problem. But shoes, with the way that they are made in the materials, etc., if you were to continuously wash them, they could damage the shoes. So again, from that angle of not damaging the shoes and not damaging the wealth, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made ease so that the people don't have to keep washing them every time. And that's understood. Somebody goes and buys a pair of shoes for 80 pounds, 100 pounds, 200 pounds. They don't want to have to be pouring them and dipping them into the washing machine every two weeks. It would damage the shoes, no doubt. And for that reason, the Sheikh mentions too, the damage that may be caused, then it is sufficient to simply wipe them or rub them clean in soil. That is the opinion of some of the scholars. There is a second opinion that says, however, that rubbing them and wiping them in soil, if you were to step on some impurity, then that is not sufficient. You need to wash it with water as well. The second opinion says you need to wash them with water as well. It needs the water. It is not sufficient just to rub them in the sand or the soil. It needs to be washed with water. And that is because the origin of cleansing any impurity is water. Water is the original purifier. And that is because of the ayat in the Quran. وَأَنزَلْنَا مِنَ السَّمَاءِ مَا أَنْتَهُورًا That we have uh, sent from the skies the pure water. And similarly, وَيُنَزِّلُ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ مَا أَنْ لِيُطَهِّرَكُمْ بِهِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that He sends from the skies this water, this rain, to purify you with it. So the origin of purification is water. And so the scholars, some of them, they said, even upon the shoes, if you step on an impurity, it needs water. You need to wash them with water in order to purify them. Al-Shaykh Al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah Ta'ala, he says that in his opinion, the first opinion, i.e. that you can just rub them in sand or soil, wipe them, rub them in soil until the impurity disappears, that is sufficient. He says that is sufficient, that's his opinion. Because of the wisdom that's mentioned, the ease and the facilitation, it will be difficult and a burden upon the people to have to keep washing their shoes if uh, every time they became impure. So the shaykh says that, uh, what he is content with is the first opinion that if you were to rub them in soil and purify them in that way, it would be sufficient. After that then, عن معاوية بن الحكم رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم معاوية بن الحكم رضي الله عنه says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said إن هذه الصلاة لا يصلح فيها شيء من كلام الناس إنما هو التسبيح والتكبير وقراءة القرآن رواه مسلم 
The Prophet ﷺ said, indeed this prayer, it is not suitable within it, any type of speech of the people. Any type of speech or speaking is not suitable in this prayer, when you are praying. Rather it is tasbih, tasbih and takbir, the remembrance, the supplication, the glorification of Allah and recitation of the Qur'an. That is what the prayer is. Recitation of the Qur'an, takbir, Allahu Akbar, tasbih, subhanallah. The remembrance, the supplication, the du'as, that's what the prayer is. Not to be speaking about other things, any other type of speech within the prayer. Then you have the hadith, that's in Muslim. Hadith of Zayd ibn Arqam, radiyallahu anhu, qal, إِن كُنَّا لَنَتَكَلَّمُ فِي الصَّلَاةِ عَلَىٰ أَحْدِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم يُكَلِّمُ أَحَدُنَا صَاحِبَهُ بِحَاجَتِهِ حَتَّى نَزَلَتْ حَافِظُوا عَلَىٰ الصَّلَوَاتِ وَالصَّلَاةِ الْوُسْطَىٰ وَقُومُوا لِلَّهِ قَانِتِينَ فَأُمِرْنَ بِالسُّكُوتِ وَنُهِينَ عَنِ الْكَلَامِ Hadith is in Al-Bukhari and Muslim and that was the wording of Muslim. Zayd ibn Arqam radiyallahu anhu says that we used to speak we used to speak in the prayer during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, whilst he was alive. We used to speak in the prayer. One of us would speak to his companion about some affair within the prayer. Until the ayah was revealed, God over your prayers and the middle prayer and stand to Allah with that silence and with that perseverance. When this ayah was revealed in Surah Al-Baqarah, Zayd ibn Arqam radiallahu anhu says, then we were commanded to be silent. Then we were commanded to be silent and we were prohibited from speaking. So what do these two ahadith speak about now? What is the topic and the subject matter of these two narrations? What is it? The actual prayer itself, but what, what aspect of the actual prayer itself? Speaking. Is it allowed any type of speech or speaking in the prayer? This issue of speaking in the prayer. An individual says something outside of the prayer. Speaks with some other words. Says something else. What's the ruling on that? Remember this is all about the conditions of the prayer. So, these two ahadith are speaking about that. Um, the first hadith of Muawiyah ibn al-Hakam radiallahu anhu what happened was that the people, they were praying behind the Prophet ﷺ on one occasion. And originally, in the early parts of Islam, it was permissible to speak in the prayer. Originally, in the early uh, parts of the revelation, it was permissible to speak in the prayer.
سنة حديثة معاوية ابن الحكم He entered whilst the people were praying behind the Prophet ﷺ. And originally, like we said, it used to be permissible to speak and mention other speech within the prayer originally. Just like we mentioned in the hadith of Zayd ibn Arqam. So Muawiyah ibn al-Hakam anhu didn't know that this commandment had been abrogated. The permissibility of speaking in the prayer, he didn't know that it had been abrogated. So he was still upon the original understanding that it is still allowed to say other things outside of the recitations of the prayer. Uh, so when he entered and the people were praying, somebody sneezed. So he, so Muawiyah who had now entered and was also praying, when he heard somebody sneeze, he said to them, يَرْحَمُكَ Allah." He was now praying, he had come in and joined the prayer. And he heard somebody else in the congregation sneeze. So he said to them, يَرْحَمُكَ Allah." After they would have said, Alhamdulillah, for the person when he sneezes in the prayer to yourself, you're allowed to say Alhamdulillah. But it's not permissible for others to respond. But here, Muawiyah radiallahu anhu still thought, it was the original commandment, it's permissible. He wasn't aware of the abrogation, so he said, يَرْحَمُكَ Allah." So then, he narrates that he noticed the people, like a, a strange feeling from the people as if their eyesight is upon him. And he realized that he made a mistake in that. So then, uh, when he was affected by this situation, what had happened, he uh, asked the Prophet ﷺ, or rather the Prophet ﷺ then told him, after the prayer was concluded, the Prophet ﷺ then said to him, إِنَّ صَلَاتَنَا هَذِهِ That this prayer of ours, لا يصلح فيها شيء من كلام الناس. It is not suitable for any type of speech from the people. Any type of other speech. Even if it was speech that is actually sunnah. يرحمك الله. It's sunnah to say that. That's mentioned. You have to say that's what you say when somebody sneezes from the rights of a Muslim, etc. But even that, it's not part of the prayer. So it wasn't allowed to even say that. So let alone anything else which is not even a supplication or something which is a sunnah. Any other type of uh, normal speech. So here the Prophet said to him, the prayer is not suitable for any type of other speech. إِنَّمَا هُوَ التَّسْبِيحُ وَالتَّكْبِيرُ وَقِرَاءَةُ الْقُرْآنِ Rather it is the glorification and the uh, takbir, uh, the recitation of the Qur'an, etc. of Allah. The recitations of the prayer. That's what the prayer is, not any other speech outside of that. The hadith of Zayd ibn Arqam, it clarifies that further, which is that originally they were allowed to say other things. It was permissible to mention other things within the prayer. And that did not affect the authenticity or the correctness of the prayer. But then that was abrogated by the ayah, حَافِذُوا عَلَى الصَّلَوَاتِ وَالصَّلَاةِ الْوُصْلَى وَقُومُوا لِلَّهِ قَانِتِينَ Guard over your prayers and the middle prayer, that is differed about in the majority of the scholars, they say it is asr. وَقُومُوا لِلَّهِ قَانِتِينَ And stand to Allah, standing as we mentioned, one of the conditions of the prayer for the fard prayer, for the one who is able, qanitin, meaning here, in silence. Stand to Allah in silence, even though qanitin otherwise means upon persistence, regularly. But also here in this context, upon silence. And that's why the narrator then says, فَأُمِرْنَا بِالسُّكُوتِ وَنُهِينَ عَنِ الْكَلَامِ We were prohibited from uh, speaking, rather uh, we were uh, commanded to be silent, 
and we were prohibited from speaking. So this clarifies the issue clearly that originally it was allowed to make other speech in the prayer, to mention something else, whatever it may be, but afterwards it was abrogated. Unfortunately, some of the people, they are not aware of this, and they still fall into this error of speaking during the prayer. They mention one incident of an individual, he was praying, and a person walked in, one of his friends, or somebody he knew, and when that person walked in, he gave the salam, salam alaykum, and this one was praying. And they mentioned this story, that he was praying, and he said to him, alaykum salam, one minute. And he was still praying. Well, in the prayer, in the prayer, says to his colleague, just one minute, and he's going to finish his prayer off. So this is not permissible. Clearly here it's mentioned now, other types of speech, then they are not correct or accurate or permissible within the prayer. Um... The final part of the ayah says, وَقُومُوا لِلَّهِ قَانِتِينَ And stand to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. قُومُوا لِلَّهِ Stand in front of Allah, i.e. with sincerity to Allah. That is with all aspects of worship that they are done sincerely for the sake of Allah. وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ مُخْلِسِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ They were not commanded except to worship Allah sincerely. حُنَفَاءَ upon tawheed. And the hadith, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ Indeed all of your actions are but by your intentions. This religion, it is purity, sincerity. They said to whom, O Messenger of Allah? He said, firstly, to Allah. So all of these actions are done sincerely for the sake of Allah, as is the prayer, no doubt. This is the, the point of it, and the Shaykh says the meaning of it here is with silence. They were commanded to stand in the prayer upon silence. So therefore, these two ahadith, they indicate the ruling that speaking in the prayer falsifies your prayer. It is a condition of the prayer, therefore, not to speak any other speech outside of the speech of the prayer, the recitations of the prayer, the du'as of the prayer, what you recite as for your prayer. Outside of that other speech, then that is not permissible. أَنَّ الْكَلَامِ فِي الصَّلَاةِ يُبْطِلُهَا that this other type of speech, it falsifies the prayer. وَأَنَّهُ مُحَرَّمٌ إِذَا كَانَ مُتَعَمِّدًا أَوْ كَانَ لِغَيْرِ مَصْلَحَةِ الصَّلَاةِ And it is haram, impermissible, if it was done intentionally. Somebody does it upon ignorance, that's ignorance. It's still not allowed, but it's ignorance. But the one who does it purposely, then no doubt it's impermissible for him to have done that. And if it was something that has no benefit linked to the prayer. That is by consensus of the scholars, that anybody who speaks other speech outside of the prayer intentionally, or speech which has no benefit linked to the prayer, then that is incorrect, impermissible by consensus of the scholars, mentioned by Ibn Abdul Barr and Nawawi and others like them. Shaykh gives some examples. A person, for example, says, whilst he's in the prayer, he says to somebody, go and do this, or wait for me, or he says to his wife, "Cook, start cooking the food and he's still in the prayer. Any type of speech of this nature, outside of the prayer, uh, especially if it was uh, intentionally done, then it falsifies the prayer. Because that goes clearly against the serenity, the tranquility of the prayer, your khushu', your submissiveness in the prayer. Um... Then there is one small issue 
What if a person speaks in the prayer with certain words or speech that is not from the prayer, it's not part of the recitations of the prayer, but it is a speech that was directly linked to the prayer. There was some need for it linked directly to the prayer, that the person needed to speak in the middle of the prayer. Here the scholars they say, that is different about. Does that falsify the prayer or not? المذهب أنه يبطلها للنهي عن عموم الكلام في الصلاة وذهب جماعة إلى أنه لا يبطلها Some of the scholars they say even if it was linked to the benefit of the prayer there's something that needs to be said linked directly to the prayer for the, for the good of that prayer and Some of the scholars they say that doesn't falsify the prayer in that case Others they say it does falsify the prayer the ones who say that it does falsify the prayer based upon these narrations. The ones who say it doesn't falsify the prayer, they're based upon the narration of Dhul Yadain. When the Prophet ﷺ on that occasion he prayed, and then after two raka'at, he gave the salam. But it was a four raka'at prayer, Dhuhr or Asr. It was one of the prayers, Dhuhr or Asr. And so when the Prophet ﷺ gave salam after two, that was from forgetfulness. There were still two raka'at left. So then, Dhul Yadain was there, the story is mentioned how he and the companions, etc. Then he became aware, then they came and told the Prophet ﷺ, and then he asked, really, is, is that the case, only two, etc. And they established, after that speech, that they'd only prayed two, and it was a four raka'at prayer. So then the Prophet ﷺ got up, and he completed the next two, and finished the prayer. So technically, when they were doing all of that discussion and establishing what's gone on, they were still technically in the prayer. They hadn't finished the prayer yet. That speech was technically still being said before the prayer had been finished. So that, uh, that's an example they used to say that the Prophet ﷺ, he got up and he completed the prayer afterwards, even though now you had a situation where they've prayed two, then they've been speaking about some affair, and then they've prayed the other two to finish the prayer. So that speech now was in the middle of the prayer. But that didn't falsify the prayer, they got up and they completed. So some of the scholars say with that type of example where the speech is directly linked to the benefit of the prayer, then it's permissible. And we're going to come to that section next time when the imam forgets what do you do. It's not the case that you start speaking. Then there's something else which is to be done. The saying of subhanallah or the women clapping their hands etc. We'll come to that next time. Uh, so to summarize therefore then, Al-Hadithan fihima anna al-kalam fi salah idha kana li maslahatina if the speech that was said was not directly linked to the prayer and it was intent, with intent, purposely done, then that falsifies the prayer. As for somebody does it out of ignorance or forgetfulness or due to this opinion of something directly linked to the prayer, it's a must, they need to say something, then some of the scholars have a difference on that. But otherwise, generally speaking, speech outside of the prayer, outside of the recitations of the prayer, it is impermissible. Uh, also something the Shaykh mentions to conclude is that the person who does something like this out of ignorance is forgiven. So Muawiyah radiallahu anhu in that narration, he said, Allah. He spoke, and that isn't from the recitations of the prayer. But he was excused. The Prophet didn't say to him, your prayer is falsified, do it again. He was excused because of ignorance, he wasn't aware. He still thought that the ruling was upon the original ruling. That the abrogation hadn't come, he wasn't aware of the abrogation. So upon that, then the Shaykh says, this is a principle that from ignorance then those affairs are forgiven. 
People often ask, I used to do this and I used to do that years ago, and I only just found out now you're supposed to do it like this. Then often the response of the scholars is, what's gone is gone now. Make your repentance, be sincere in that, regret what you did, and now correct your affair and do it as you have now learned it needs to be done. As for the previous what's occurred, now it's occurred. So this is the principle the Shaykh mentions. Uh, people, you don't command them to have to then repeat 10 years of worship of some issue that they were doing incorrectly. They did it incorrectly upon their ignorance, it's gone now. Now they make it up, uh, or rather they do it properly in accordance to how it should be done once they found out. The final thing the Shaykh mentions here is the mannerisms of the Prophet ﷺ, how he behaved towards Muawiyah ibn al-Hakam anhu with that softness and kindness and gentleness when uh, he spoke to him and he said that this prayer of ours, it is not suitable for any type of speech. That was a good manner or the morals and the behavior of the Prophet ﷺ were indicated in that manner that he spoke to Muawiyah ibn al-Hakam in explaining to him the ruling that speaking in the prayer is not permissible. Nowadays, if you saw somebody speaking in the prayer, everybody else afterwards, they would attack him. Maybe that individual, Allah Alam, it's possible. It's possible maybe the individual was ignorant. It's possible there could be some other reason. He might not be well. Could be some other issue. The people need to have some wisdom in how you deal with situations. Every situation is dealt with on its own merits. Here the shaykh gives this as an example of dealing with people with softness. If they are upon a lack of knowledge, Muawiyah ibn al-Hakam didn't know that ruling, he didn't know the abrogation. So what need is there for any severity or harshness? He wasn't aware of the new ruling. And that's just like the uh, man who came and urinated in the masjid. Imagine, a man came and urinated in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. He came and urinated in the corner of the masjid. So the companions, they rebuked him harshly. So the Prophet ﷺ, and in one narration he said, Da'uhu. Leave him, allow him to finish. Why? Again, because of the principles we mentioned. Reducing the harm. You have two harms now. You have the harm of him urinating the masjid, that's wrong. But then you have the harm if you were to prevent him suddenly in the middle of his urination, that suddenly out of shock he would get up. The urine would go everywhere on his clothes, on his body, on other parts of the masjid. That would be even worse. And so the Prophet he said to the companions on that occasion, don't be severe upon him in this way. He prohibited them from being severe upon him. Rather, it was to advise him with gentleness, because he was upon ignorance. He was an Arabi, one of these nomadic types of people who live out in the deserts and forests and they travel around. He wasn't aware. He thought down in the corner of the masjid, it's not a problem. He genuinely didn't know. So the Prophet ﷺ dealt with him in the appropriate manner, not with harshness or severity. He didn't know. So that is something that a person bears in mind, and as the scholars they say, that is a principle in giving da'wah. One of the principles from the principles of giving da'wah, is to know how to use that wisdom, when to be soft with the people, when to be harsh. An individual who is opposing salafiyyah, with intent, with arrogance, no doubt you behave with him in a certain way, with harshness and severity if needed. And others who are genuinely ignorant and they don't know, you see a brother doing something, but genuinely he just doesn't know. So you don't use any harshness upon him. You don't go to a person and say, Ahi, what's going on? Don't you know? Have you not heard of the scholar's speech? And speech of this nature which is going to make some burden on his heart. He genuinely didn't know, so speak with goodness in those situations. And this is what's mentioned about knowing how to deal with the people and giving da'wah. Using that wisdom. The final thing that we just mentioned is, with regards to this speech and the prayer, 
often people they ask about it. Uh, if a person is praying and your parents they call you, for example, you're praying and your parents they call you, they shout you to come down or whatever it might be, then what do you do in that situation? For the supererogatory prayers, the supererogatory prayers, as Sheikh bin Baz he said, if you are able to continue, you know it's not something important. You know, for example, the food was cooking and now your mother is calling you down. You know, it's not important. Another minute or so you finish your prayer, you'll go down, it's not a problem. In that instance, the sheikh says, okay, finish your prayer. Your mother, even if she shouts you now, it's not an emergency, she'll go away. A few minutes later, she'll come back. And by that time, you know you'll finish and go down anyway. So in that type of situation, the sheikh said for the supererogatory prayers, complete your prayer, even if you are called by your parents. There isn't any need or necessity or emergency. There's no problem. Just finish your prayer and go. If there was some urgency, your parents are calling you out of some urgency, some need, some emergency, for the supererogatory prayers, all of the speeches, in the supererogatory prayer, the sheikh said, you can break it then. If you're praying a supererogatory prayer, nawafil, and your parents call you out of some urgency or need or emergency, they need you there and then, then it's permissible to leave the prayer and go. They give the example of Ibn Juraj. The hadith about Ibn Juraj, when he was praying and his mother called him, and he continued in the prayer. The second time his mother called him, he continued in the prayer. The third time his mother called him, he continued in the prayer. And then so after that, his mother made dua against him, and the dua was accepted. The dua she made against him regarding the prostitute, etc. And how then that child afterwards that was born spoke. That child spoke whilst he was still in the crib. And he told them that it's not him who fornicated. It wasn't him. It was some other individual. That hadith. But the point of it being that he continued three times, when his mother was calling him, and the scholars, they use that as an example. Look how the, da- the dua of the mother was accepted against him. So in a supererogatory prayer, Sheikh bin Ba said, if there was a need, an emergency, somebody shouting you in the prayer, your parents, and the, uh, for that rightfulness upon them, due to that emergency, that need, you can break the supererogatory prayer and go. But if there wasn't a need or an emergency, they're calling you down for the food, no problem, finish your prayer and go down. That's what they mention in the supererogatory prayers. And we'll conclude upon that then and we'll carry on in two weeks' time.